This is KSQD Santa Cruz. From Santa Cruz, California, I'm Gary Shapiro, and this is From the Bookshelf. Thanks so much for joining me. Tom Santapietro returns to the show this week. He is the author of several books about several of my favorite topics. Doris Day, Barbara Streisand, Frank Sinatra, for instance. He's also written biographical histories of some of our greatest films, To Kill a Mockingbird, The Sound of Music, The Godfather, and his brand new book, The Way We Were, The Making of a Romantic Classic. In addition to being an acclaimed author, Tom Santapietro is a Broadway stage manager. He's managed, I don't know how many, great shows. And he's also a commentator and presenter of American popular culture. You, you've probably seen him on a PBS documentary or two or heard his commentary on a Blu-ray of some classic films. Tom Santapietro, welcome back to From the Bookshelf. Uh, thanks very much for having me on. It's, it's always nice to talk to you. Uh, before we get to the way we were, so since we last spoke, uh, Francis Ford Coppola has released a new version of what was once called The Godfather Part 3, and now it's called The Godfather Coda. Now, I'm not a fan of Godfather 3, but you know, when when you wrote about it in your great book, The Godfather Effect, you found a lot to admire in it, and we argued about it here on the show. I, I believe I remember that argument, Gary. <laughs> so have you seen the new version, and what do you think about it? Oh, well, uh... Gary, uh, being a Godfather obsessive, I saw it the day I could possibly, the first day I could possibly see it. And I think uh, it's better. It is not a wholesale reimagining of the film. It, it, the most noteworthy things are it's a, uh, the beginning is different and the ending of the film is different. And uh, it's, uh, I don't know if it's a spoiler alert to say or not that the it's too late you know, to worry about spoilers for a movie. Right. Okay, great. <laughs> uh, I, I actually like this new ending a lot because Michael does not die. Right. And I think it's much more tragic that he has to live with everything he has done. Uh, so I, I think the, you know, I think there's a lot to admire in the film. It is clearly not up to the first two. But I think it suffers in comparison to the first two. And when just looked at as a film on its own, that's where I find a lot to admire. Well, oh, right. So if there had never been two great, two of the greatest <laughs> films ever made. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, I did think that Sofia Coppola's performance in rewatching it was better than I remembered it. But maybe not good <laughs> I, I actually i would agree with that i i think it, she's not you know has never want, said i'm an actor you know she's a director and, and a good one she had to s step in at the very last minute um and uh i think she did the best she could given the circumstances is what i would say and it, it's better than we remember because people were so vicious about her performance at the time of the original release yeah. and uh, i think they people were overly harsh on her it is interesting to look and this is something you do in in your books and in films in general to look back at how films are initially received and then years later people look at those films and wonder why they were received the way they were. I mean, in both directions. I mean, people look at the greatest show on earth and wonder why that film was 
won the Academy Award for Best Picture, and people look at uh, uh, Heaven's Gate and think, well, why did people hate it? It's pretty great. Right. A- absolutely. And I think you you really realize when you go back that how, the reviews are so influenced by the tenor of the times. And uh, I really found that when I wrote my book on the film version of The Sound of Music, because when I went back and look, looked at the reviews, um, so the industry reviews were great and the small towns and small cities were great, but the big cities were scathing. And you looked at the reviews and you could see those critics trying so hard to establish that they were hip and were therefore looking down on the sound of music. It was really interesting. And so the New York Times wrote a horrible review about the sound of music, condescending. The 50th anniversary comes along. And the New York Times does another review of the sound of music and they say, oh, this is actually pretty good. <laughs> so, you know, it, it, it was really a reflection uh, uh, of the times to a large degree. Well, um, in the, the the pandemic, uh, before again, before we get to our main topic today, the, the way we were, which, by the way, I love the book and I can't wait to talk to you about it. But I also want to know about Broadway. So the pandemic really shut Broadway down and now Broadway is back. Are you back on Broadway? I am back. Uh, it, it was, you know, we were the first industry to shut down really in the country and we were the last to reopen um, because, of course, of being around 1200 strangers uh, cheek by jowl. And I would say uh, uh, it's interesting to observe the what's happening with the shows because the big shows are back as uh, doing uh, fantastic business. Everybody wants to see Hugh Jackman in The Music Man. COVID does not enter into their thinking at all. Mm-hmm. But the more marginal shows, they're, they're struggling. They're having, that's where the sort of COVID thinking comes in. Um, but the the big hit shows are, uh, yeah, as strong as ever. So, and it is, uh, it's a very nice feeling to be back watching something amongst our fellow Americans, uh, as opposed to, only sitting on the couch and streaming. <laughs> what, uh, what's, what, what show are you working on now? Um, I'm working on a show at Lincoln Center, uh, which is a one-man show with the comedian Mike Berbiglia. Mm. And he, several of his shows have been filmed for Netflix. And I think this one is going to be as well. And he, I have to say, it, I love this show. I love working on it. He He is both hilarious and there's a undercurrent in the in the show which is about mortality and what happens as we his health issues and as we get older and so you find yourself laughing your head off and then you think oh that sounds familiar to me (laughs) that visit to the doctor so uh i i he's a tremendously skilled and very nice man now when you're a stage managing a show that's a stand-up comedian's act do you laugh every night i mean or, or <laughs> uh, you laugh at different things you laugh at uh different inflections different pauses um you know when you're around any show for a long time you you memorize it in your brain you know it's unconscious and uh so uh, you can still discover new things and uh 
especially with somebody like Mike show, because he plays with the audience a lot. And so that is different depending on how the, the audiences are different. As opposed to a scripted show, which is pretty much the same every night. Every single night. And, you know, you get to the two hour mark and you're like, oh, my gosh, is this ever going to end? <laughs> <laughs> well, as a stage manager, is one of the first things that you do when you're hired to stage manager show, read the script and familiarize yourself with the script the way an actor would or a director? Sure. Yeah. And I but I also, you know, I'm in sort of an odd position that I I stage manage sometimes, but I will also sometimes uh, be the company manager, which is the business manager of the show. Or I'll be the house manager, which is managing the theater itself. So it's sort of wearing these different hats. And uh, as a stage manager, you start with the script. Uh, in the other roles, not necessarily. You're around Broadway. What what uh, what have you seen that's remarkable lately? The most remarkable show I, I have seen is this new musical, a small musical called Kimberly Akimbo. Hmm. And it was a play and uh, from two or three years ago, and they have adapted into a musical. I, I think it is sensational. It, it's the best I've reacted to a show in a really long time because it's hilarious. And yet at the end, it is extremely touching. And, you know, that is a very hard thing to do with a musical. So hats off to i i personally think it's going to win a lot of tony awards come the spring uh it's very small it has a really uh, it's only eight in the cast and mm. uh, a, a sensational show i think and is it playing in a smaller theater it is playing in a smaller theater it's the smallest theater on broadway the booth theater seats mm -hmm. i think 805 so it has a much more intimate feeling named for uh, john wilkes booth i assume <laughs> <laughs> no that can't be right <laughs> well there are a lot of booths running around <laughs> that would be bad taste i think i heard they just named a theater for james earl jones is that right they, they did they uh named what was the court theater for james earl jones uh you know a sensational actor as we all know and oh the theater is so beautiful i walked in there and they did this extraordinary job it, it looks so great and worthy of james earl jones well, that's that's really great. I think that's quite an honor. You know, they have not named a single theater after me for some reason. I think they oh, should have been. Gary, I'm sure that's just an oversight. And actually, <laughs> I'm sure uh, probably a special Tony Award for you this year. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I don't know why. Um, all right, let's 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 talk about your new book, which is absolutely great. Uh, the oh, way we were, you. the making of a romantic classic. I really enjoyed the book, and I was thinking I will rewatch the movie, but I haven't rewatched it yet but i'm going to because <laughs> um, because and i i saw it in the theater when it came out right and i loved it because i love barbara streisand and i love robert redford um but i thought it wasn't a very good movie so it's one of those movies that um you know that was like uh, and i only saw it maybe four times and <laughs> 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 now like it was a movie that was you know highly engaging and everything about it was wonderful except i didn't like it <laughs> um and i think what i didn't like about it was that it seemed like a, a you know kind of soapy like a soap opera mm -hmm. that's what i mean by that and um 
And I can see that it's a classic and it's still around. And so maybe that's why. But let me ask you the question anyway. Why did you want to write about the way we were? I want um, that, of course, is a very good question. And I think the answer is, it, in a way, it completes this trilogy of books I've written, the other two being The Godfather Effect and The Sound of Music Story. Of I, I love to look at these films that people don't just like, but they become obsessed with. They return to these films over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And so they speak to something very elemental within us. And I thought, I, I really want to look at that. And uh, so, and also the fact that my very first book was about Barbara Streisand, it was sort of coming full circle to look at her again. Right, to return to that. Later. Yeah. So I, I that 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 was the road I set set out on. Was there was there material in your uh, which I, I read that book and I loved it, but it was a while ago. Um, was there material in that book that you were able to catapultize or research that you did for that book that you were able to use again? Um, a, a little bit. I, you know, that my that first book about Barbara purposely called the importance of being Barbara. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a bit on the way we were, but I was looking at everything she had done and there was so much that, you know, I had two pages on the way we were, but this I really wanted to look at because of, I, I think the reason why the film resonates so much for people, well, it's twofold. It is the attraction of opposites. She, Barbara's character is completely different from the Robert Redford character. And that's yeah. always interesting to us. And I think the second reason is um, because it's the story of loving passionately, but not wisely. And we have all fallen in love with the wrong person at some point, male or female. It is universal. And, and that really interested me. And one of my friends, the uh, terrific film scholar, author Janine Basinger, said something really great. We were talking about the way we were and why people loved it. And she said to me, Tom, you're right. Everybody has fallen in love with the wrong person at one point or another, except maybe 10 people. And who wants to know them? (laughs) (laughs) And I love that. And I thought, well, I have to write about this. So, (laughs) well, she's great. I love her, her work. Um, Do you think that the, the way we were says something about Judaism and Jewish Americans to a certain extent? Uh, I think absolutely. Um, and I think it's it, there is, you know, Barbara's character is named Katie Morosky. Uh, she's very clearly a Jewish and and Arthur Lawrence, who wrote the film, um, said that one of the things that intrigued him was he felt that Barbara was the first Hollywood star who arrived in Hollywood unapologetically Jewish saying, this is who I am. I am proud of my heritage. There was no changing of the name. You know, Edward G. Robinson was really Emmanuel Goldenberg. And Uh, Arthur Lorenz was really Arthur Levine or something, right? (laughs) Yeah, everybody, you know, and with Barbara, there was no changing of the name. There was absolutely no nose job. 
you know, yeah, it's like, this is who I am. And, and that's uh, enormously appealing to us. It's the same thing of why I'm fascinated by Frank Sinatra. They tried to get Frank Sinatra to change his name, if you can believe it, to right. Frankie Satin. <laughs> <laughs> I think you know his response to that suggestion. <laughs> I don't think we can say it on the radio. We can't, but he, he did say, I'll, I'll leave out the one word. He said, the name is Sinatra, Frank blank Sinatra. <laughs> I'm Gary Shapiro. This is from the bookshelf. My guest is Tom Santapietro, film historian, whose new book is a book about the film, The Way We Were. I want to ask you about the blacklist also. So because the way we were deals with the blacklist although i think i think i'm not alone in my criticism of of the way we were and that i i i loved it but also found flaws with it yeah absolutely and, and i think one of the things was the way it dealt with the blacklist because there's not enough about the blacklist in it there there was a movie made at the same almost the same time um uh the front uh, yes. which had woody allen and zero mustel and a lot of blacklisted people uh, who had been uh, who wrote it and directed it and had everything to do with it. Martin Ritt, I think. Um, so that was a movie that was about the blacklist mm -hmm. with a romance, you know, that kind of kept the story going. Whereas this movie is a romance that has a little bit about the blacklist. And now when I look at it, I think a little bit about Gone with the Wind. So Gone with the Wind has been criticized to be, as being a racist film because it doesn't deal with the issues of slavery that um, that are apparent in the story, but that isn't what the story is about. The story is a love story between Scarlet and Rhett that happens to be set in this period of time. So would you say that's a similar um, case with the way we were? I, I, I think you've hit the nail on the head. I think it is a romance uh, and part of the film, not the whole film, but when it, goes into the 1950s and they moved out to California that then it deals with the blacklist and and you're absolutely right I mean that's that's where the film is weakest and it's uh it's because and I talk about this in the book because it's interesting to see how they put these films together there was wholesale editing and they chopped out a lot of sequences that dealt with the blacklist and the reason why they chopped those out was because they had a first uh, sneak preview in San Francisco and the audience was loving it until about the two thirds mark when the political stuff came to the forefront and Sidney Pollack, uh, the director and Ray Stark, the producer noticed that all of a sudden the audience is going up and getting popcorn. They're going out to make a phone call and they thought, uh -oh, we've lost people. And they literally the overnight, they they didn't they went to Francis Ford Coppola's I don't know editing suite, and with a razor blade they chopped out multiple political sequences, and it's why the film is choppy in that in the sort of last third of the film. And I think when people hear that they go, oh, they cut parts, and I want to see all those things that they cut. But on the other hand, when I see movies today, and I I do occasionally see them, I think. Why didn't they cut 28 minutes out of that movie? Right. Yeah. That movies today are, are definitely too long. It's a, and uh, they, so I had a fascinating written exchange 
with Barbara Streisand about this very issue. Mm. And I uh, was able to, uh, what I did was, uh, uh, you know, there are many layers of that you go through to get to somebody of Barbara's stature. And uh, I was able to submit a number of questions and uh, she answered them in writing. And it was fascinating because on many levels, uh, to me, uh, because 50 years later, it's 2023 is the 50th anniversary of the film, the chopped out sequences still bother Barbara. Mm. Still, And she wrote about that to me, which was really interesting that, you know, she still felt passionate about what was lost in that kind of wholesale editing. And um, uh, the other thing is, I, I submitted questions that, of course, I thought about for a long time. And she wrote back these very detailed paragraph long answers for each question. And I thought, oh, I've just learned firsthand why she is who she is, because (laughs) every word matters. Every single word was thought after and there was an exchange back and forth. And uh, so I I thought, oh, this is why Barbara became one of the foremost interpreters of Sondheim because she has the same philosophy he did. And his famous quote is, God is in the details. Mm. And every detail matters to her. So, and and circling back to where we started with this, those cut out political sequences, you know, she raised, she talked about a very valid issue, which is that so much is chopped out that all of a sudden you think that Katie and Hubble are getting a divorce because he had a one night stand with his girlfriend, Carol Ann. And it wasn't because of that. It was really because of these enormous political differences they couldn't reconcile. Which are missing from the film. Right. Were they present in the novel that the film is based on? Um, to a degree, it's more that they were present in the first drafts of the screenplay. Mm. And uh, several of these were filmed. And on the 25th anniversary DVD, you can see some uh, two of the cut sequences, which are fascinating uh, uh and one of them in particular barbara really want it really bothered her that it was cut out of the film and uh uh you you now get to see oh this would have helped explain that gap in the story um but of course after these little bit the sort of herky-jerky editing you get that unbelievable editing a- ending in front of the plaza hotel and you kind of forgive everything that's gone on before yeah. that it's funny because <laughs> that's the image that sticks with me and with most people yeah absolutely uh so this is we should celebrate the 25th anniversary of the 25th anniversary dvd yes exactly um uh, you have two stars in this movie that both became film directors i don't think either of them had directed yet but both of them became film directors one of whom won an academy award for his his only academy award i believe right for directing that's correct and um uh and barbara should have won an academy award but you know she's a woman so they didn't give it to her um she has an acting award of course yeah and a songwriting for her very first film yeah that's right oh yes a songwriting award too for evergreen yeah that's right 
Um, so how was it for two actors who are inclined to be directors to work together in a film with a director? Uh, everybody expected fireworks, I think, and there weren't. Um, and I think that's uh, because for two reasons, Redford had worked already several times with Sidney Pollock. So they had a rhythm going with each other. They knew what to expect of each other and they respected, you know, the thoughts uh, of, of one another with Barbara, you know, who had always, she was trailing this reputation of being temperamental and insisting that everything be her own way. She was so happy with the role. She knew this was her chance to establish herself as a dramatic actor, not just a musical star. And um, that, as Sidney Pollack said, he said, ironically, Barbara was the least problematic aspect of the whole production because she was happy with her role. And then there was this, everybody on the set could see, there was this sort of, instantaneous chemistry between Streisand and Redford. It, and it's why we still talk about the movie. They were so opposite as characters in the way they acted, in their speech patterns. You know, she's rat-a-tat-tat, he's very laid back, Brooklyn, California, you know, it just, and it, that informed the characters they were playing. Hmm. And, and they never appeared in a film again together, even though it seemed like, well, they, they're going to be the next, uh, William Powell and Myrna Loy, or yeah, yeah, Carson and Walter Pidgeon. Well, that that is, I I have a section in the book, and it's really towards the end about there was much talk of a sequel, and there were several screenplays written for the sequel. I thought the idea was a great one for the sequel, but you know these Hollywood films with enormous stars, they it's hard to make all the pieces fit together at the right time. Yeah, I just never did. But wh why did they never? I understand why they didn't make a sequel, even though the sequel idea that you present in the book is really a good one. But why didn't they just make another picture together? Maybe uh, they still could. I th I think they still could. Uh, I actually had an idea. <laughs> and, uh, I, well, I think now that Barbara uh, Streisand is your corresponding friend, you can. Yeah, <laughs> Somehow, I don't think she thinks of me that way. <laughs> uh, but I, I think, uh, look, what what happened after that is that, as you correctly pointed out, they each had their eyes set on directing. And, uh, you know, they both had contractual obligations. She had to fulfill her contractual obligations to Ray Stark. And uh when they went to direct films, especially in the case of Barbara with Yentl, I mean, that was like four years of labor for her and things just take on a life of their own. And uh, so they are, however, it, it's really interesting to me. Again, I wanted to talk about this in the book. The connection between them is still there. And so when Redford has been receiving these Lifetime Achievement Awards, New York Film Society and uh, the Academy Award. It doesn't matter that he made three movies with Jane Fonda versus one with Barbara. It's <laughs> always Barbara that's there to present him with the award. <laughs> it's that attraction of opposites again. 
We're talking to Tom Santipietro, and his new book is a a biography of the movie, The Way We Were. And I know that you are read in your acknowledgments. I know that you spent a lot of time in the New York Public Library and so forth doing this kind of research that you do. But who did you talk to uh, uh, when you were researching this book? Well, uh, it, you can, I think I had a nonverbal talk with Barbara, the back and forth with the written answers. I had a fantastic uh, phone, lengthy phone interview with James Woods. Mm. It was James Woods' first movie. He plays Barbara's college boyfriend. And I, he was fascinating to because he was talking about what it was like starting out with these two superstars at the peak of their careers, what they were like to work with, what Sidney Pollack was like to work with. So I really liked talking to him a lot. Um, I also had two great interviews with Alan Bergman, the lyricist of, you know, the title song, which became a number one hit. Uh, I had a <clears throat> really nice interview uh, with Lois Childs. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was Lois's, it, was, it wasn't, it was her second movie, but it was her big break playing Redford's college girlfriend. And uh, so I, I talked to a production assistant, an assistant director. I tried to get a well-rounded view of the film, like a little bit from each department. So the, 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 the people involved in the movie, in addition to Redford and Streisand, were the director, Sidney Pollack, and Arthur Lorenz, the the author who is the author of so many great things, right? Uh, it plays and musicals and movies, and and Ray Stark, who was the producer of a lot of great things. Who who was the um, who made this movie happen? Of all those people, well, it all it all started with Arthur Lawrence, and uh, because Ray Stark <clears throat> had made two very successful movies with Barbara. Uh, uh, funny Girl and The Owl and the Pussycat. And he wanted to do another film with Barbara. And uh, it, it, it was a, it, a great story because uh, so uh, Arthur was going to on Ray's behalf. Ray said, oh, we should do, a, a, I want to do a musical with Barbara. And The Sound of Music was successful. So Barbara should play a Brooklyn teacher who teaches blind children to sing. <laughs> And and talks about the fact that he was on his way to see Barbara and he knew it was such a horrible idea that he couldn't even bring it up to her. <laughs> and so when they sat down, because they knew each other because he had directed her in I Can Get It For You Wholesale when she mm -hmm. was 18. And that was her first breakthrough. And he said that, uh, uh, and I just loved it. She couldn't make this up. As he was talking to her and listening to her, he thought, oh, who is she reminding me of? And then he thought, oh, yeah, it's my classmate from Cornell University. And that classmate's name was Fanny Price. One <laughs> letter different from Fanny Bryce. And that was kind of a sign. And he, because this Fanny Price was uh, politically fervent and Barbara is very politically active and motivated, and it really took off from there. And he wrote a treatment and uh, uh, Ray Stark loved the treatment. And Barbara, more to the point, really loved the treatment. Well, of course, I know you love Barbara Streisand since she was the subject of now two of your books. But yes. uh, there was a recent release and I, I'm sure that you um, have 
swallowed it up like me. Uh, her her early nightclub performance has just been released on a CD, um, and it's an incredible thing. Do you have any uh, thoughts on it? I it, it's it was uh, recorded at the Bonsoir nightclub when uh, you know she was a kid, and it was supposed to be her first release, and um, instead they did a studio album, and now we're finally hearing this. And what my biggest reaction was that she, she was so assured both as a personality and her vocals were so unbelievably strong as as this 20 year old i just thought this is amazing you know it, people like that they have a gift you know it's a gift from god i always think and and to to listen to her in command of this audience in a sophisticated new york nightclub when she's a kid that was my biggest overall reaction and i loved really loved what barbara herself said there was a big article about this in the new york times and she had not listened to the tapes in decades and she said that she listened to herself and she thought that girl can sing. <laughs> I, oh, yeah. That's kind of great. <laughs> She's very funny on the record as well. Very funny. Yeah. And and we think of her now as sort of much more serious and political, but she she was out there when she was a 20-year-old. Speaking of that, so there's been a Broadway revival of Funny Girl, which has had three different, uh, I think three. I might have lost track. I think there's been three Funny Girls. And it's a show that, you know, it's so attached to Barbara that it's never been revived before, I don't think. Right. Um, And have you seen it? And what do you think of it? I was actually there a lot uh, because I was house managing at that Mm -hmm. one, managing the theater itself. So I've seen all three of the (laughs) Fanny Prices. I am really familiar with Funny Girl on many levels. And it it is fascinating because they... um, it is so identified with Barbara and it's, you know, not only that she did it on Broadway, but an Academy Award winning film turn by Barbara. Right. Yes. And so it, the film, I mean, the, the show was really struggling at the box office until Leah Michelle came in. And now, as I think everybody knows who is aware of Broadway, it, it is a sellout hit because People want to see Leah Michelle, and what really interested me managing the theater. So I would watch the audience come in. You know, you sort of get the feel for. And I thought, oh, the the hardcore fan base, the people who are here now, are thirty year old women, uh, young women, who were watching Glee as teenagers. Uh-huh. It was such a formative experience watching Leah Michelle, and you know they had the whole storyline of Leah Michelle's character on Glee wanted to do Funny Girl, and I thought now they get to see it in person, and oh, and it's right. really interesting to watch them because they come in the theater and the very first thing they do, they don't go to their seats, they run to that merchandise booth. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and and, and Leah Michelle is the artist who has recorded the cast album. So when they say original cast album. They really mean the third guest album. Have they replaced other people in the show as well? Is uh, they, the the uh, Fanny Bryce's mother was originally played by Jane Lynch, mm-hmm. and now it's being played by Tova Feldsha. Mm. 
though it has a very, very different feel to it, starting with the fact that Jane Lynch is like six feet tall and Tova's barely five feet. So (laughs) it's seriously, you know, that, that sort of physicality, it it makes for a different show. And Jane Lynch is a very, um, you know, she's a presence that is uh, extremely well-known and her personality is kind of, I mean, she plays a certain character all the time. Yes. She's, she's not reticent. No. <laughs> well, uh, Tom Santibietro, uh, it's, it, it's wonderful that you've written this book and, uh, I really enjoyed reading it. In fact, I enjoyed reading it more than I enjoyed watching the movie, but that's okay. I feel like part three. Um, the way we were, the making of a romantic classic and the author, the brilliant Tom Santipietro. Thank you so much for hanging out with us on From the Bookshelf. Gary, thanks so much for, I always really like these talks with you. you. I can always expect an unexpected question, and I like that a lot. That's it for this week's From the Bookshelf. I hope you enjoyed the program and will come back and see us again next time. In the meantime, you can check out our website at fromthebookshelf.com. You can subscribe to our podcast wherever you subscribe to podcasts. You can even get your smart speaker to play From the Bookshelf by saying, Alexa, play Gary Shapiro's From the Bookshelf. And she will. Until next time, for From the Bookshelf, I'm Gary Shapiro. Take care. See you soon. (laughs) 